Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 116 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And we are recording on November 8th. It's post-election. We are so happy to have the election behind us. And we want to congratulate Joe Biden and Kamala Harris for their historic win. Kamala Harris being the first woman vice president is a huge glass ceiling to have broken through. And it's just a momentous historic event. It is. And um, it was extended for those of you who aren't in the United States. I mean, I know sometimes United States news stretches quite far, but this was an extended election for us. It went on for days. So I know a lot of us are feeling just kind of buoyant to have the decision made. Yes. You know, it feels really good. Yeah, so. sure does. And it was a really great, their acceptance speeches were really interesting to listen to. And Kamala Harris, I love that she looked directly into the camera and spoke to little girls that they will grow up knowing that this is an achievable position. You know, she said she's, she might be the first woman to hold this position, but she certainly won't be the last. That was yeah, a powerful that- moment. Yeah, a lot of horn honking, because I guess people were in cars <laughs> watching it. So yeah. <laughs> a lot of horn honking occurred when she said that. I thought it was really wonderful. And I thought Biden did a good job of just addressing the country and suggesting it's time for us to start trying to work together yeah. again, which I'm very excited about. Yeah, same here. In other news, I just wanted to give a follow up to we talked last episode about the printing squeeze that's going on in American publishing and how like President Obama's forthcoming memoir, a million of those books had to be printed in Germany to help fill demand. So there were two printers that we talked about. Both of those American printers were up for sale and Bertelsmann bought Quad's printing. So they are no longer in danger of going under. And it looks like from the note that I have here, they bought both of their book printing plants. This deal went through on October 31st. It's their Berryville Graphics Division. They have plants in Fairfield, Pennsylvania, and Martinsburg, West Virginia. So that's some good news for the publishing industry. Yeah, and hopefully there won't be too many hiccups in them continuing their business and there will be fewer disruptions in printing of books that were predicted for yeah. some of these big fall releases right or maybe more holiday releases at this time I don't know yeah 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 holiday releases holiday buying we talked in our last episode too about you know purchasing those book gifts earlier if you can um, just to make sure you'll be able to get them and they'll be able to keep demand supply right exactly it's all about supply and demand keep buying those books people (laughs) yes (laughs) or also just when you request them from your library you know Mm -hmm. then that library purchases copies also so well exactly yeah I mean that's the thing too with our library system like if they see all of these hold requests coming in for a book and they only have one or in some big library systems 20 copies you know they might order 10 more, 20 more, 30 more to fill that demand too. So it is at the library level too. Right. It's nice to have some good news to report. Yes, it is. So Chris, what are you currently reading? I'm currently reading a a pretty exciting novella. The title is The Route of Ice and Salt. It's coming out January 19th, 2021. This is a translation of what's called, it's considered a cult classic by Jose Luis Zarate. 
Z-A-R-A-T-E. This book first came out in Spanish in Mexico in 1998, and it became a real, you know, cult classic, queer classic. I heard about it through Silvia Moreno-Garcia, who wrote Mexican Gothic. She's behind getting this book translated and a new edition printed in English-speaking countries for the first time. She actually started it with an Indiegogo campaign, and she oh, did cool. you know, meet that goal and even went over a little bit. So the book is categorized as gothic horror, queer desire. It's literary. I'm about halfway through right now. And what the book is, it's, t- it's a vampire novel. And for those of you who are Dracula fans of Bram Stoker's Dracula, which also happy birthday to Bram Stoker. November 8th is his birthday. So when Dracula is leaving continental Europe, he has boxes of soil loaded onto a ship and is taken to England that way. And a lot of crap happens on that ship. It's not a good (laughs) voyage for those of you who've read the book or have seen movies. So this book, The Route of Ice and Salt, follows the journey and it's from the captain's perspective. It's so it's first person. Woo, it's first person. And, you know, it's ta- they talk about it as queer desire. Um, it, it's a very phallic centric book, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Emily just almost lost her tea. Um, <laughs> so this is going to be an X rated excerpt that I'm going to read to you all. So if you have little ears in the car or something, if you're listening, you might want to skip this part or, you know, come back to it later. I just wanted to give you an idea of it because it's very, it doesn't have like magical realism at all so far. Um, But the captain has a lot of really bizarre dreams about like rats eating his penis and things like that. So it is like kind of a hardcore book. And I just wanted to read these two short paragraphs just to give you an idea of the sound and of the pacing as well. Without releasing it, I penetrate its center, allowing my foreskin to retract, the wood to encompass my sex. There is no humidity, and yet it is easy to enter the Demeter, which directs her bowsprite in the direction towards England. The sphincter of the helm is the right size for my sex, but I can sense its strength. If it should close tightly enough, it would rip my cock away. But the ship wants me to stay inside, to feel her, vibrating with the wind, that continual whisper over the waves, liquid and dry in a thousand parts. I do not move. There is no need. The ship moves for me, ramming the waves. Dot, dot, dot. I'll just stop there so you get a sense of the flow of this book and the erotic nature of the book. R-rated. I would say that's X-rated. X-rated, okay. (laughs) This is another dream that he's having, a sexual dream in nature. And you don't really know what's going on with the captain. I mean, that's what's keeping me reading this. So again, it's not like a thriller type vampire novel. It is very literary. And what keeps me going is wondering what, what is the deal with this captain? And I think there's some good historic detail, perhaps, about what it was like to be a captain of this ship in the late 19th century and how, when you're going through different waters of different countries, you had to stop and the inspector came on and a lot of bribes happened and things like that. So I'm enjoying that. 
This book, again, it comes out January 19th, 2021, The Route of Ice and Salt by Jose Luis Zerate. I'm reading The Office of Historical Corrections by Danielle Evans. I'm actually listening to this through Libro.fm on audio. It has multiple narrators. It's a book of short stories. And so far, every short story has a different narrator, which is really cool. And some of them have multiple narrators, you know, as different characters in the story. It's interesting, though, because one of them, the story I'm in the middle of right now is called Boys Go to Jupiter. And it's about a college student whose boyfriend gives her a bikini that's a Confederate flag design. And he takes a picture of her and puts it on social media. And she's she's off campus at the time of all this. And when she goes back to campus, a big hoo-ha has come up about it. And she didn't really understand the importance of the Confederate flag, you know, or the import, I guess I should say, of it. And instead of copying to that, she begins to get defensive. So... It's interesting, but what's also interesting is I have read that story before. Really? So it must have been published somewhere online or in some sort of magazine or journal that I read. So as I was listening to it, I was like, I've heard this before. It's really weird. So That is strange. Um, I had an experience when I was a teacher. I, one of the schools I taught at uh, was Rowan Cabarrus Community College in North Carolina, and one day after class, as I was making sure all the, it was a writing uh, class, so I was making sure all the computers were turned off, somebody had left a photograph. It wasn't of anyone who was in the class, but it was of a, a white young woman in a bikini with a rebel flag draped mm. over her. Interesting. And I never knew who it was. I took it because I didn't want to leave it there. I think I, mm-hmm. I just ended up throwing it away, but I, I kind of gasped when I first saw it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So wow. I, maybe that's a yeah. thing. Like maybe that's one of those cultural things that people do. Well, I mean, I come from a place where people had them on their cars and stuff. So, I mean, I think it does. I mean, I think the point of the story, I'm not through it all the way. And I, like I said, I remember that I read it, but it also seems a little different. So I wonder if I read it in an early incarnation. And now that she's published the book, you know, it's in a different, it's more fleshed out. But I mean, I think the point of it is that she didn't realize, you know, it's like, Oh, my boyfriend gave me this thing. He took a picture of me, he posted it on social media. And she didn't realize what it meant, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. so and then the reaction of all the people around her in the campus and people who live in her dorm who feel threatened by her now and things like that. It's really interesting. Our buddy Russell from Ink and Paper Blog is not a huge short story fan. And he said this is the best collection he's ever read. And Roxanne Gay said that Daniel Evans is the best short story writer around right now. So that those two people really got my attention, which is why I downloaded the book. And I'm really enjoying it. More to report when I get through all the stories. But again, it's called The Office of Historical Corrections by Daniel Evans. Mm. Um, I just have to say, I'm really happy. I grew up at a, in a time when there was no social media. Yeah. (laughs) Or digital cameras for that matter. (laughs) 
Well, and even for me with my kids, I mean, my kids didn't get cell phones until they were deep into their teens. And then it wasn't smartphones. I mean, smartphones didn't come around until they were, you know, in college. And I am not sad about that. Yeah. So right. mad props to all you parents trying Ugh. to figure that out now. Yeah. And all you teenagers <laughs> trying to survive. Yeah. So I actually had a DNF. Mm. I DNF'd Cardiff by the Sea, Four Novellas of Suspense by Joyce Carol Oates. I was having a hard time getting through the first story. I mean, I'm on page 87. And I just realized, ugh, you know, the first story goes to page 129. And I thought, I just really don't care. You know, and I put it down and I was kind of resisting reading. And that's never a good thing. So I'm just letting it go. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Take it back to the library. Yeah. Moving on. Maybe another day. <laughs> well... I have one that I'm so in love with. It's been hard to do anything else this weekend but read, but I, I have done some other things. But it's called The Cold Millions by Jess mm. Walter. I love this book. Let me got to grab it out of my stack. I have so many books on my desk, everybody. You wouldn't <laughs> even believe it. And thank you to Harper. Um, they sent me a copy, which I was so excited about. I did a happy dance. Jess Walter, um, he's written several books. I've read one of his that was um, a set of short stories. And then I also read his novel called Beautiful Ruins. And this book reminds me a little bit of East of Eden. For those of you who rank that as one of your favorite books, I'm raising my hand just because it's two Irish brothers. It's a time where these two Irish brothers are really not doing well. Both of them are hard laborers. And it's during the early days of the labor movement with Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who was very much a proponent of like a socialist and a proponent of workers getting their due and getting their rights, which I'm a big believer in, too. The two brothers have been really having a hard time finding their way and they're, you know, have hopped trains and done stuff like that. And they're, it's during the time of silver mines and tr when they're building the railroads and all of that. Mm. And the point of the book so far is, is kind of the haves and the have nots and the early industrialists who made a lot of money and didn't necessarily want to provide safe working environment and high wages for their employees. And part of the reason we needed unions was to make sure that they did right by their employees. Jess Walter is a fantastic writer. It's historical fiction. He makes it very clear that there are some real characters, but it's a fictionalized version of events. And I've just gotten completely lost in the story. I love it. Highly recommend. I'm not done, but I'm almost done. <laughs> the Cold Millions. <laughs> Jess Walter, I will talk about it more on the next episode. Very cool. Well, the last book I'm kind of currently reading, I just started it. I, I checked it out of the library. It's The Art of Losing, Poems of Grief and Healing, edited by Kevin Young. And Kevin Young is a name uh, listeners might remember. He's currently the director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. Um, but he's actually going to be heading to the Smithsonian. He's going to be the director at the National Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C., which is a fantastic museum. So that's really exciting. I know that's going to be a big loss for the Schomburg Center, but can't wait to see what he's going to do down there at the museum in D.C., um, so this book, uh, you know, so, you know, we've come across him several times and 
I wanted to read uh, some of his work. And this is actually, though, a collection of poetry that he has broken down into different subjects. And it's by a wide variety of poets. I mean, there's Wilford Owen is in here, Louise Gluck, who just won the yeah. uh, Pulitzer or Nobel, right? Was it the Nobel? She won the Nobel. Yeah. yeah. A lot of different poets are in here. So it's Reckoning is one of the chapters, one of the section headings, I should call it. Regret, Remembrance, Ritual, Recovery, and Redemption. I've just been kind of opening it up and reading a poem and putting it down. So I look forward to continuing to do that. And this might even be a book I buy. I have a library copy. I might actually buy it because... Everything I've read so far, I've really enjoyed. Oh, lovely. Yeah, it sounds like a nice one to just have like on your nightstand or coffee table. Yeah. So again, that's The Art of Losing, Poems of Grief and Healing, edited by Kevin Young. I think he's also the editor, the poetry editor of The New Yorker, I want to say. Yeah, he is. So I wonder if he'll have to give up that post when he takes his new big job. We'll see. Yeah, and he won't be in New York anymore. I don't know if that's an issue at all. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He'll be going down a little bit south. <laughs> so what did you just read? Well, I have one book that I finished since last time, and it was an audio book that I absolutely loved. It is right up there now with my top audio books. Did I say audio book or library book? You I, said audio. I did say audio. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at a library book when I said that. The title is Pastrix, The Cranky Beautiful Faith of a Sinner. It's by Nadia Bowles Weber, who's a Lutheran pastor. She's known, uh, her handle on social media is the Sarcastic Lutheran, I believe. She has a blog. <laughs> she has a podcast now. All of her books, I believe most of them anyway, have been New York Times bestsellers, including this one, Pastrix, which came out in 2013. She established a church after she became a Lutheran pastor called the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver. And it became a very, uh, you know, the media paid a lot of attention to this church. The Lutheran church paid a lot of attention to it. It was a LGBT welcoming church. That's just the population that it was serving. And as it grew, it eventually became a church where everybody came and one of the, the beautiful things about this audiobook is that she does such a great job of weaving in her own story with the stories of other people and situations she's been in to kind of show how the message of Jesus can be shown to have applicability today. And Martin Luther preached about grace a lot. So grace is a big factor too. And so one of the issues that happened was as the church got really popular, like the Denver Post had her on the front page after a, a big event. So all these suburban people, you know, these white suburban people in their khakis started showing up for service. And she got really grumpy and pissy about it because she's like, these are not the people like they can go to any fucking church they want to and fit in. Like, I want to preach to the people who don't fit in. And so as she does, she kind of realizes what a good thing it is because a lot of the LGBT kids or young people or older people even who are there like having these white suburban people there 
because they don't have relationships with their own parents. So for those younger people, mm. it made them feel like this is a person who's my parents' age who's accepting me and talking with me. And that was a need that they really had. So she sees, you know, eventually like, wow, this is a beautiful thing that's happening. And, you know, she realizes her own judgment about people based on how they look. And she's also a recovering alcoholic. You know, I raised my hand to that, you know, the whole LGBTQ thing. I've also, I was raised Lutheran. I've had an on again, off again relationship with the church. So a lot of things resonated in this book for me, including her potty mouth. <laughs> she is, she swears a lot, but I really enjoyed it. it. It, you know, I read, I was listening to it during the height of all the election caca that was happening. And it was just a great diversion mm -hmm. to listen to the voice of a powerful woman who's talking about all the times she's messed up and how she still is a mess up, but you know, she's going to wake up every day and keep going. It was very refreshing. Does she narrate it? Yeah. yeah, she does. Yeah, she narrated it. Another book that she wrote that was also a New York Times bestseller was Accidental Saints, Finding God and All the Wrong People. And her most recent book was 2019, and it's called Shameless, A Sexual Reformation. And she's really an advocate for women to have pleasure with sex, that there shouldn't be you know, all of this embarrassment and judgment and guilt surrounding sex. And one of the things she did, I don't know exactly the details, but she had people mail in their, those rings that young girls were given by their dads to maintain their chastity until they got married. Remember that we talked with an author who wrote about mm -hmm. those chastity yeah. rings yeah. or promise rings. So she had all of these rings melted down and I believe made into a statue in the shape of a vagina and she presented it to Gloria Steinem. <laughs> so I wonder what Gloria Steinem did with the statue. <laughs> I don't know. I, I enjoyed it. I, I'll definitely uh, check out another one of the audiobooks if she narrates it because she's very entertaining and it was really well done. The flow of the audiobook was very consistent again that was pastrix the cranky beautiful faith of a sinner by nadia bowles weber is that with an x yes pastrix p-a-s-t-r-i-x people who don't believe women should be pastors refer to women who are pastors as pastrix it's a it's a slam she's reclaimed it for herself just as you know queer people certain pe queer people have reclaimed that word and just, just like we've reclaimed the word cougars. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so what about you? What have you just read, Emily? Well, I did a ton of reading. And the first one I read was called We the Jury. This is by Robert Rothstein. And our mystery man, John Valeri, talked about this on episode 72. And I was so excited about it. I bought it right away as an ebook and then proceeded to not read it, you know, <laughs> and I was having such a hard time finding a book to read one night. And I was just like scrolling through my library on my e-reader and came across it and thought, oh, I'll dip into this. I love a courtroom drama. I love books written by um, lawyers. So this book checked both of those off. And what's really interesting about this, it's a murder trial and it's told from a, over a dozen points of view. Wow. Different jury members, the judge, the bailiff, the courtroom clerk, 
the prosecutor, the paralegals, the transcriptionist. It's really interesting. The crux of the story is it's a married couple. The husband has murdered the wife. There's no doubt that he murdered her. He axed her in the head. So it was a pretty much he wanted to kill her. Like there was no doubt about that. Not funny. I don't know why I'm laughing. But I'm laughing because I remember I listened to John talk about it again before I wanted to talk about it. And he's like, that was the only gross part. I'm like, that's pretty gross <laughs> yes. you know, and graphic. But they didn't. It wasn't graphic in the book. But it's a it's a couple that one of the things about them is the husband and wife. The wife was his high school teacher. It was one of those things where she started to have an affair with a young man. They ended up married, though been married for a dozen years had two children but the question is was she abusive to him or not because he pleads that he's you know the abuse which is very unusual for the male partner to claim that versus the female partner so that's the crux of the story but then it's told from the point of view of all of these jurors as they're listening to the courtroom antics you know yeah and then just another added little layer is that the judge who's presiding has recently lost her husband. So she's going through a very difficult time and seemingly maybe with a little bit of dementia. And so her, the people who love her, like her bailiff, are trying to cover up and protect her. But she's kind of losing her shit a little bit. And it's affecting perhaps the outcome of the trial. Interesting. So. Wow. A little added thing. I really enjoyed it. Some of the themes included abuse, adultery, biases that we have, getting different folks together in a room that come from all different walks of life and have different perspectives. And what are our implicit biases, right, that we bring to Mm -hmm. any sort of decision like this? And how you can influence, like, you know, you have to come to agreement. So how do the different jurors influence each other? It was pretty good. Wow. I enjoyed it. That's great. Yeah. And it sounds with, with all those characters, all those voices, it sounds like you didn't have a problem keeping everything straight in your head. Not at all. Not, although I always did sympathize with the judge character that was losing her mind. Because <laughs> I've been feeling like that lately a little <laughs> bit. But um, no, it was very clear, you know, like juror number nine and, you know, the mm-hmm. bailiff and, you know, things. And then they would re- have portions where the jurors were deliberating and they would read, you know, parts of the transcripts and that's how you learned about some of the trial. So it was a really interesting take on it. The author is an intellectual property lawyer and he has a lot of celebrity clients. I think he's out in LA or something. I think he's written several books, but this is my first of his and I really enjoyed it. Again, it's called We the Jury by Robert Rothstein or Stein. I'm not sure which. Now, have you ever been called to jury duty? I have, and I've never had to go. You know how you call like the day before or something? And Mm -hmm. every time I've not had to go in. And I'm kind of a lawyer wannabe, right? So I would would really love it. Now I've jinxed myself. I'm going to be on some like three month (laughs) trial now. (laughs) I've only gotten called once and I spent the day, you know, sitting in the Cook County courthouse, just waiting, reading my book, 
chatting with people, but never got called for an interview or anything. So that was my day. And I think you, they give you like 25 bucks or something like that for for your wow. day. But I was kind of hoping that I'd get called because I always thought it'd be fascinating to be, yeah. you know, at a trial. We had a friend who, when she went through law school, you know, had to do the mock trial. She invited us to come and, you know, be audience for that. And that was so much fun. Oh, how cool. When I was in grad school, I had to take a, a nonprofit law class. And most of my coursework was online and distance learning. But we went one summer, I had to go and take the law class. And it was taught by a professor in the law school. And we actually, on the last day, got to go into there. They had like a mock courtroom and we got to go and try a case. That's and it awesome. was so fun. <laughs> I was I was a, an assistant DA, but I was so nervous. I stood up and I introduced myself as the DA. And he had a great sense of humor. By this time, we'd been in class together for a week, you know, and he said, wow, I thought you were the assistant. Congratulations on your promotion. You know, it was really funny, which of course made me even more nervous because I was like, I messed up just saying my name. <laughs> it was really funny. That's great. Uh, yeah. Say so maybe when the when the world opens up again, we can go down to New Haven and sit and watch some court cases. <laughs> That's a good idea. I mean, I hear they're actually really slow and boring. You know, we're so used to watching things on TV or reading a page turner book, but Really, it's a lot of, you know, paperwork and rigmarole. And, and yeah. yeah, it would be fun. I would do it. Well, the other book I finished was called Eat a Peach by David Chang. And I listened to this on audio and he narrated it. And um, David Chang, for those of you who don't know, is a very renowned chef. In 2004, he opened up a restaurant called Momofuku in um, the East Village of New York. It was food like people hadn't seen before. It was a ramen bar, but he would do a lot of really interesting things with food and put different flavors together. It was kind of a rough in the sense of like the environment inside was really loud and busy. And um, it just had kind of an ethos that really appealed to people and became very popular very quickly with lines out the door, impossible to get into. And he also opened up um, a dessert side called Momofuku Milk Bar, I believe is what it was called. And fast forward 14 years later, and he owns a restaurant empire, you know, and has restaurants in Australia and Las Vegas. And so it really um, takes you through that time in his life from being a very early young chef that didn't think his restaurant was going to do anything and trying to figure out how to keep this, you know, tiny little place in New York running, which is not easy in New York anyway, but they had a lot of facility problems <laughs> there. So he takes you through some of that. Um, it also crosses over 9-11 and the opening in of his restaurants in Vegas and Australia. And it's very personal. Also, he has a lot of trouble. He has um, depression, issues with depression, bipolar disorder, maybe. I mean, he mentions a lot of different potential problems. I'm not sure officially what his diagnosis is. So don't hold me to that. But he really um, changed the scene, restaurant scene and the food scene in the United States. And one of the things that I thought was really meaningful is he talks a lot. He's actually Korean, but his Momofuku had a lot of Japanese influence. And when reviewers would come or people wanted to interview him and they would say, what kind of food do you serve at your restaurants? He would say, 
American food. And people were really pushed back against that. And they, he said, when it comes to Asian food, people always want to call it fusion. Mm -hmm. If you do interesting things to Asian food and he feels like I'm just serving American food, you know? Mm -hmm. So I thought that was really interesting. And then the other thing that was really meaningful to me was he talked about being a workaholic and anyone who works in the restaurant industry and owns multiple restaurants hands down, you know, you could classify them as workaholics. It's hard work to own one restaurant. And then when you get investors involved, it's really challenging. And he talks about how he manages his mental illness by being a workaholic. Interesting. And I never really read that in a book so clearly defined the way he does and so honestly depicted. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciated that. And it really made me look at my own work ethic and how, you know, I definitely use my work, especially during the early days of the pandemic, to have a reason to get out of bed every day and walk 10 feet to my desk. And that was going to be my big adventure for the day, you know. So I, I thought that was really... It was a really honest of him to talk about that. He also uh, um, approaches and has a chapter towards the end of the book that addresses the Me Too movement, which has been really big in the restaurant industry and big heavy hitters in the restaurant industry like Mario Batali and some others have been brought down and their restaurants, you know, either closed or changing um, hands because of how they've handled employment issues mm -hmm. in their restaurants. I've never worked in a restaurant, but I've heard that it is kind of like they are the captain of the ship. And if you don't like it, leave. So mm -hmm. I can mm -hmm. imagine the abuse is stacking up everywhere. Well, there's lots of abuse in the restaurant business, right? There's a lot of um, drug abuse, alcoholism, and, you know, mistreatment of women for sure. And men being the voices of women and taking ownership of the food they cook historically has been a big problem. And so he doesn't really have a ton of solutions, but he just offers that um, he knows it's a problem and he recognizes that his restaurant group needs to get its house in order mm. was kind of how he talked about it. I thought that was interesting. He also walks you through his winning of James Beard Awards and how unprepared he is for that because it really impacts what happens to your restaurant. You know, it just raises the bar for what you have to provide your customer, their expectations when they walk in the door. I really enjoyed it. So it's a, it's a new memoir. It is. Yeah, okay. It is. He also was the editor, and he talks a lot about this in um, the book of a magazine called Lucky Peach, which I never got my hands on. I'm late to the party. It is no longer in circulation. He talks about its demise. But it, it has a cult following. I mean, I thought, oh, I'll get online and see if I can find a copy. And some of them are selling for like a thousand dollars. It's insane. <laughs> so it was well thought of. I never got to see one. So no. I should see if any libraries around have them actually. Yeah. Just thought about that. I also finished a book called The 14th of September by Rita Dragonette. And the premise of this book is it's a young woman, Judy, who has gone to college during the fall of 1969. So the Vietnam War is, is full-fledged happening at that time. She's on campus on an Army ROTC scholarship, and she gets involved in the anti-war movement. 
which is threatening to her family, which is an army family, but also to her scholarship. But part of it is, you know, at that age, when you're young, you're learning about the world at large. So she enters the campus. There's a big anti-war movement going on that she gets swept up in. The title of the book, The 14th of September, is her birthday. So she celebrates her 19th birthday on campus, September 14th, 1969. It also happens to be in December of 1969, there was a, you know, a lottery, a draft, And that date was the number one birth date that was chosen. So that's part of the symbolism and the importance of that date and the title of the book. Interestingly, I was reading about, I've always been fascinated by the lottery because people I know changed decisions in their life so that they didn't have to be drafted. You know, they might have been on a certain career path and they decided to become teachers instead or something so that they could dodge the draft essentially, Right. right? So I've always been fascinated by it. And I was reading this in bed and was querying the gentleman caller who's a big, you know, he's done read everything about the Vietnam War. And I was like, explain how this works. Like, I've never quite understood the birthday and how it correlated and all that. So he pulled up like there's a chart you can pull up that actually shows, you know, the birthdays and what your lottery pick was. And we're laying in bed. And I said, on a whim, like, look up my son, Jacob. What would he have been? Number two. Wow. And I said, look up Liam, who's the gentleman caller son. What would he have been? Number four. Wow. It took our breath away. Yeah. You know? So that was really interesting. But anyway, the book takes place over a very short period of time, but really is addressing that whole notion of the draft and these friends that she gets to know and what their lottery pick is and things like that. If that's something that's interesting to you, historical fiction, I would recommend this book. Again, it's called The 14th of September by Rita Dragonette. I have two more. Wow. Keep going. Keep going. I've been listening to a lot because I've been driving so much. (laughs) So the other one I listened to was called Leave the World Behind by Ruman Alam. People might be hearing about this book. There's a lot of buzz. I listened to this one. Um, It's long listed for the National Book Award. This is a book, though, I'm going to talk very sparingly about because it's one of those you have to step into it not knowing anything. You really do. I promise you it's the best way. But I'll just set the stage. And so the stage is this couple and their two children head out of New York City to the Hamptons. They've rented an Airbnb for a one-week vacation. It's in present day, so they're very attached to things like their cell phones and streaming movies. And the kids have been promised they can watch any movie they want. They walk into the house, beautiful house they couldn't afford, but, you know, that's your week vacation. You rent a beautiful home. They've had a lovely vacation day. The lights go out. It's evening. There's a knock at the door, and it's an older African-American couple who have left New York City because there's been an event, and there's a blackout, and they're the owners of the house. And so it was obvious to them to come to the house as a place of refuge. And then things happen, including the couple looking at them and saying, 
how could you own this house? Interesting. Because they're an older African-American couple. And everybody, it's just two straight couples? Yes. The people who rented the house are white. So there's an undertone of racism and class. But then there's also this event that's taken place. So it kind of turns into a little bit of a mystery slash thriller. Interesting. And all that's right. all I'm going to say. <laughs> and it was a good audio, huh? Very good. Okay. I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, I was on pins and needles and I listened to it. I want to say it's it's somewhere between six or eight hours. So, you know, it took me like three days of driving and I listened to it. And it. I, the one day I got to my office and I was like, that's bad. I don't even remember driving. <laughs> but um, very entertaining. I enjoyed it. Leave the World Behind by Ruman Alam. And he's on book tour right now also. So if you want to hear him speak about it, I encourage you to do so after you read the book. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> no avoid spoilers. those spoilers, right? Yeah. And then the last book I read was called Our Lady of Perpetual Hunger, a memoir by Lisa Donovan. She's a very revered pastry chef. I can't say I've ever read a memoir um, written by a pastry chef. This book was unbelievable. She garnered some attention for two reasons. One, she was the pastry chef at a very renowned restaurant called Husk, which opened in Charleston. And I think she also helped him open some other, I think there's three Husk restaurants. The start of the memoir is about her time as a young woman where she was involved with an abusive man who raped her and she became pregnant. And she had the child at a very young age. And then her family encouraged her to try to repair her relationship with him and move back in with him. And it didn't go well. So she she had some rough go. And then she had this young um, baby. And she was a young woman. But she chose to forge ahead and go to school in the arts. And then also got involved in the restaurant business and cooking. And she really takes you on a journey of her growing into a woman and getting married and having another child. But also growing into her own voice and her own talent. She talks about like at Husk, she was the pastry chef and she was really, people were coming into the restaurant for her desserts. She was renowned for her desserts and she wasn't getting paid well. And when she would ask for a raise or for just the title of, you know, like head pastry chef, they wouldn't give it to her. And even at one point they said, if you want a raise, you have to fire one of your other chefs in order to have money. Wow. You know? How crappy. Yeah. Yeah, not very pleasant. And she speaks a lot to, which made me think of David Chang's book, Eat a Peach, also, what happens when wealthy investors get involved in the restaurant business, because they just want to make a profit. And it's hard to make a profit in the restaurant business. And, you know, they want flash, and they want glitz, and they hang pretty fancy lights in the restaurant, but they aren't necessarily interested in treating their staff well and being kind about how hard it is to run a restaurant. She's also very well known and won a James Beard Award for an essay that she wrote and was published in Food and Wine magazine called Dear Women, 
own your stories and it confronts the Me Too movement and she lists her own experiences with sexual harassment in the restaurant business. It's a great essay. I strongly recommend people to read it. It's online. I'll post a link in the show notes. I loved this memoir. I was so sad when it was over. And I've now am completely stalking her on all forms of social media. (laughs) And she says she's going to write another memoir with recipes. So I'm very excited. Excellent. That's the question I had was if she had recipes at all in the memoir. No, she talks about some of the things she's really well known for, like making hand pies, like these apple pie hand pies. There's lots of food talk in the book, but there's no actual recipes. And she also claims her heritage. Her mother was Mexican and her father, I don't know what his heritage was, a white man from the United States who was in the army. So she really, you know, talks about all of her Nana and her mother and the wonderful, like there's scenes of her watching them make tortillas. Oh, you just, I was hungry the whole time I read this book. (laughs) So I wanted to just read this one paragraph. She goes, she gets invited. This is after she's, you know, well known in the industry and she gets invited to go cook, um, a dessert at a dinner with this woman, Diana Kennedy, who's well known in the food world for um, writing about food. So the woman, Diana Kennedy has eaten this dessert and it calls um, Lisa Donovan out to the table, you know, out from the kitchen. And she says, this is Lisa from Lisa's perspective. In those four minutes, Diana Kennedy seemed to want to make a point to me, a point I can't quite figure out how she knew I needed. She started to ask if I had heard her recording her podcast the day before. I said yes. In the podcast, she talked of the women's spirit in the kitchen, how it rules Mexican culture, how it rules the family, how it rules the hearts of those who get to come close to the magic of a mother or abuela. She asked if I was a mother. I said yes. She asked if I cooked for my family. I said yes, of course. She then asked if I had told that story to the world. I said I had not yet told any stories to the world. She then asked me why she had never heard of me. If I was capable of making these desserts, I said I did not know. And then as she got up to leave the table, she said, I do. Stop letting men tell your story. (laughs) That's great. Great. I loved it. Her writing is sublime. And it's interesting because one of the things her Nana, her grandmother, used to send her books and sent her an MFK Fisher book, I can't remember which one, that she talks about and how that affected her food writing. And um, now she doesn't work in the restaurant industry. She considers herself to be a full-time writer, which I think is fantastic. Kudos to her. Absolutely. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So again, it's called Our Lady of Perpetual Hunger, a memoir by Lisa Donovan. Biblio Adventures. I've had a couple since the last time we talked. The first one was a really interesting Zoom conversation. It was hosted by Dennis of Scared Straight Reads. He is a bookstagrammer on Instagram. He had a group of queer thriller writers. I don't remember how I saw this. I think one of the writers who I follow on Twitter is how I heard about it. That's right. Um, John Copenhaver tweeted about it and I signed up and it was a really neat conversation. So Dennis hosted it, moderated it with Jennifer Pashley. Her latest book is called The Watcher. Heather Levy, 
who has a book, her first book coming out from Polis this coming summer. The title is Walking Through Needles. Then, as I mentioned, John Copenhaver, his book is Dodging and Burning, which I believe our friend Kate has read that and really recommended it. And I think she gave me a copy, if I'm not mistaken, unless it's something else. And my books are still a mess. We've lived in the new house for a year and <laughs> nothing is organized. They're on shelves, at least. Ugh. I say, when I see your bookshelves behind you, I think they look beautiful. But that doesn't mean they're organized in a way where you can find things. Exactly. And I used to be so anal about alphabetizing everything immediately. Then there was Kelly Ford, whose book is Cotton Mouths. And that book I bought, and I have it on my e-reader because Heather Harper Ellett, our buddy who wrote Ain't Nobody Nobody, recommended it. I saw that on Twitter, too. I get so many great recommendations on Twitter. Her short pitch on that was, it's about chickens, lesbian, and meth. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the last writer, uh, but not the least, is Lane Fargo. Her latest book is They Never Learn, which is about a bi teacher who kills serial killers on the campus where she teaches. Oh, my gosh. So that is not a campus or college I want to go to. But I'm interested in reading her book. So that was a really interesting conversation. He, uh, Dennis, asked some really interesting questions and everybody had great answers. I have pages of notes that I took. Cool. I can't say that I've ever heard of a bookstagrammer being the host of, so there was no bookstore involved, you mean? No. He just hosted it. It was him. And I had to email Jennifer to get the link to be able to participate. So it wasn't like an open Zoom But it was through them. I think they got together and hosted the conversation, which is really kind of cool. Because at first I was like, well, who's this through? Like, what bookstore or university or, you know, something. But it was just him, I guess, taking the initiative. That's really cool. Yeah. So check him out on Instagram, Scared Straight Reads. I will put that in the show notes for sure. Well, I had an in real life biblio adventure so exciting (laughs) (laughs) well I have um I think I've alluded to the fact that I have moved and I am away from the water which makes me feel slightly untethered and so the gentleman caller has been doing a lovely job of helping me explore new places in Connecticut that I've never been to which is really fun I mean he was born and raised here so he knows Connecticut much more than I do And so we went to do a a paddle on the Connecticut River in Essex, which is a small little town, but very historical because the Connecticut River was a very busy river back in the day. And as a matter of fact, there's a museum there that we didn't go into because of COVID. But um, when we can go into places more safely in the future, we do intend to go back to that museum. That's a lot of the history of the Connecticut River. As we were pulling in to town, right on the main drag, there was this flag flying that said books. So (laughs) we masked up, you know, I looked at him with my puppy dog eyes and he was like, okay, Jim works in a hospital, so he tries everything he can to not have to wear a mask on the weekends. You know, we really try to avoid it, but he loves books too. So (laughs) we went in and Chris had talked about this bookstore earlier and uh, it was really fun. He's, it's a young man that owns the store. He's only been open since July. Poor guy, not the easiest year to open a business. 
And then to cap it off, the parking lot in front of the store has been under construction since he moved in. I'm like, it's a parking lot. How could it take so long? But it was just finishing up, so he was very excited about that. But it's a used and antiquarian bookstore. So I thought a lot about you, Chris, when I was there. Because I know you got to peek your head in but didn't really get to browse. Yeah. Um, yeah. But a sweet guy, I asked him how it's going. And he said, you know, it seems to be picking up. You know, there is it is a town that gets a lot of foot traffic. It's, yeah. Um, you know, old and beautiful and a lot of really cool places to eat and um, shop. Yeah, there's the Griswold Inn, which is famous. It's one of the oldest, if not the oldest, continuously running restaurants slash inns in the country. And like it's one of those places where George Washington ate. Essex is really important during this Revolutionary War, back when most transportation was with ships. Right. So it is yeah. a really cool little town, though. I totally fell in love with it. I just really enjoyed it. And we bought four books because, you know, we want to support him, not because, you know, we need books. But <laughs> um, I bought Atul Gawande's Being Mortal, which is a book I've been wanting to read. And then another one caught my eye. It's called The Passion of Reverend Nash by Rachel Bosch. And she's a Connecticut author who I'd never heard of. And this book gets really good reviews. So I'm excited to read that. Jim bought one on surf casting and then also one on like barbaric wars. I don't know. I keep thinking he keeps, you know, stopping to tell me all of these things. And I'm like, oh, you got to talk to Chris about this stuff because she would actually care. <laughs> he has been like, I mean, that he that book has been on his lap every night since we he got it. It's hilarious. He just loves every bit of it. I just, yeah. That's great. So. <laughs> I just nod. <laughs> nice. Well, I did, uh, you know, I mentioned last episode that CrimeCon, Crime, C-O-N-N, which is normally an in real life one day conference hosted by Ferguson Library, the Mystery Writers of America, New York and Connecticut chapters. Instead of doing it online for one whole day, they spread it out over multiple nights. So I attended two of those already. And then I believe there's two or three more nights coming up. Tom Straw, the host of it, he's a well-known mystery writer. And he turns it over to a moderator who talks with the authors who were there that evening. I'm looking forward to uh, the next, you know, upcoming events with that. And then the other event that I attended was the Brandeis University Novel Symposium. This is an annual event that I it only caught my attention this year because they were focusing on one of Willa Cather's novels, The Professor's House. It is an all-day symposium. They have scholars presenting papers on different topics. I won't go into great detail about the, the novel itself, but the event itself was really good. I unfortunately couldn't attend every panel because I had other work duties happening, but I did catch several of them that were great. And what was fun is that it was on Zoom. They did it that way instead of as a webinar, so you had more face-to-face -face interaction too. They had the presentations and then they'd have small breakout rooms with just a cluster of people. So what was fun was that you saw people in their homes with their pets, so their cats, uh, one woman had chickens walking around, not in her home, but outside. She was outside on a picnic table and you saw her big chicken coop in the background. So 
first book event I've ever been to that there were chickens present. Mm-hmm. But I enjoyed it very thanks. much. Yeah, they did a good <laughs> job. So I'm going to keep my eye out on this Brandeis Novel Symposium for next year. If it is going to be online again, it's really wonderful that they let the public in and it wasn't just for, um, you know, students. This was on a Friday and on Saturday, the, the event was just for registered students and grad students. Oh, that's yeah. nice. So yeah. they did a combination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it was really Yeah. I mean, that's one of the cherries on top of COVID. There aren't many, but that we get to attend some of these events that aren't, you know, I mean, maybe this one would have been open, but you would have had to do a lot of traveling and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Instead, you can travel from your office chair. So exactly. Well, I got to attend an event through Politics and Prose. It was Dan Rather in conversation with Jennifer Steinhauer, who is a journalist with the New York Times. And um, he has a book called What Unites Us. It came out in September of 2019, but it is out in paperback now. You know, this was a really nice event to attend pre-election because I just felt like my nervous system was a little bit broken, (laughs) basically. And to hear like, this was a voice that I grew up with, you know, and kind of, I always thought of him as a voice of reason. They did allude to the fact that he left 60 Minutes under some kind of a kerfuffle. I meant to look it up. I don't remember. I vaguely remember there was something. But I mean, I don't think it was something that ruined his reputation, because he seems in his I think they said he was turning 90. Wow. Yeah. I mean, he's busier than ever. He listed off this list of things he does, including a podcast and all that sorts of things. I was just tired listening to everything he does, you know, and it also made me think like, I actually look forward to retiring someday, but <laughs> I guess some people don't want to. He talked about a lot of different things. One of the things that he said that was really funny, because I think his birthday was imminent. He's 89 and was turning 90 in the next day or two after this event. And she was asking him what it's like, you know, to be the age he is now. And he prattled off all of the things he's doing that he enjoys and his spending time with his grandkids. And he said, but I have to admit, I don't often buy green bananas anymore, (laughs) which was his way of saying, I mean, he said it in a much more interesting and prophetic way. But basically, he was saying, I live every day for the day, you know, (laughs) which was very cute. The one question that I thought was really interesting, um, because the, the discussion was really about politics. And he was talking about what he's been doing with this generation around politics. And he's got quite a following on Twitter with young people. So he talked a little bit about that. He also talked about the Trump presidency and um, Jennifer Steinhauer, who is a New York Times journalist, said, you know, do you the press has been accused of kind of aiding the Trump campaign in 2016. What do you think about that? And he said, you know, it was the first time in his recollection that the press, they were dealing with a candidate who was an entertainer and they had never dealt with that before. And so they gave him a lot of free airtime because of that. Like his entire rallies would be, you know, on air for free, essentially. Um, That was one thing he said, I do think we should be held accountable for that. But he said, you know, at the time of this, you know, when I was listening to this, there had been debates and things like that. And he said, I think he's also a very difficult interview and that the press had learned over the past four years how to handle that. 
situation, even though just a couple of weeks ago, I think Trump got up and walked out away on Leslie Stahl when she was interviewing him for right. 60 minutes. You yeah. Know? So so he th- he took some culpability for the press in all of it, but also said, you know, it's been a difficult situation that everyone's been learning to handle. But I also do think the entertainment factor has been problematic and that news agencies have, you know, been selling papers due to it. Absolutely. So. It's so much about ratings. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. sure how entertaining he is more as just being a personality. But Mm -hmm. yeah, it Mm -hmm. was really poor judgment on their part, I think. Mm -hmm. They normalized anti-democratic behavior, and that's all I'll say. Yeah. (laughs) So anyone who wants to watch it, I thought it was a great conversation. He was at his house in Austin with a beautiful backdrop of like a beautiful weaving behind him. And I enjoyed the conversation. And it was Um, recorded. So I will put a link in the show notes and you can watch that if you care to do so. Upcoming Biblio Adventures. I have one that I plan to attend. It's on November 16th with Ron Nyron talking about his new book, The Book of Lost Light. It's with via Booksmith um, in San Francisco and they posted the time as 530. They didn't put Pacific time, but I'm making that assumption okay. that it's 530 Pacific and then um, 830 Eastern. But what's interesting about this event is that it's being hosted with his writing group. All of the authors in his writing group are going to be a part of it. And that's Ann Packer, Angela Newman, Ann Cummins, Lisa Michaels, Cornelia Nixon, Sarah Stone, Rafael Iglesias, and Vendela Vida. And what I think is so cool about this is when I went to my first Booktopia in Santa Cruz, Ann Packer was one of the authors at the event. And she told this whole story about her writing group, which (laughs) is this writing group, and how when they have, they've been meeting for years. And when she has a manuscript, she prints actual paper copies, gives them to each of them, has them, you know, put their notes in, then she prints a new manuscript and takes a different color pen to represent each of them, writes all of their notes in the manuscript in their color, and then goes back and edits her book. And I just thought, wow. Yeah, it's a lot of good hands on time. (laughs) Yep. She also said her novella took her 10 years to write. And I was like, wow, well, because you're thorough. Mm -hmm. (laughs) For sure. So that's on November 16th, Ron Nyron. And then the Book Cougars have, are, we're hosting a virtual event on December 1st in partnership with Book Club on the Go. We'll be hosting Kimberly McCreet and her new book, A Good Marriage. I'm looking forward to that. I still have to read the novel. I know you already have and you enjoyed it. I did. Yeah. yeah. Please register and join us. We'll put a link in the show notes to that. And also you can purchase a book through Book Club on the Go and it will be signed by Kimberly. That'd be great. We'd really appreciate it if you'd support Cindy and, and uh, Book Club on the Go. She's doing really great things, but she needs our support just like all bookstores. Indeed. So I have a couple events. Uh, so the Texas Book Festival is starting uh, Charleston by Charleston. I have some events there that I've registered for as well. And then one event I registered for through the Northshire Bookstore up in Vermont is on November 11th at 6 p.m. It's uh, author Thomas Frank talking about his new book, The People, comma, No, colon, 
A Brief History of Anti-Populism. Mm. He will be in conversation with Eric Morzer. They ask you to buy a ticket, $5 to buy the ticket. And you can also purchase the book through Northshire, which again is always appreciated. And that is all the event action I have coming up. I think now that the election is over, I'm going to just read more. (laughs) I really look forward to that because my brain wasn't really capable of like reading for more than like 10 minutes at a time is how Mm -hmm. I felt. So yeah, I was very distracted too. Yeah. And these book festivals are really cool and there's lots to choose from. We'll put links to their main pages in the show notes and get online and register for some events. I have two. I have The Pull of the Stars by Emma Donahue, who we heard speak at the Hachette Book Club brunch. I already had the book on my nightstand and I have it on audio. So that's one I'm hoping to dive in as soon as I'm done with The Cold Millions by Jess Walter. And then an upcoming book club book for me is Cuyahoga by Pete Beatty. This is I put I put a picture of this on our social media this week and Chris commented about the axes on the spine. I don't know much about this book, although uh, all I know is it takes place in Ohio. The Cuyahoga River is in Ohio, runs through Cleveland. It takes place in 1837. Oh, very cool. Yeah, You've been really digging nice... on the historical fiction lately. I have. It has a super cool cover and Thank you to Scribner. We have an extra copy, so we'll be doing a giveaway of this in the future. To be a part of our giveaways, you just have to join our newsletter, which you can do uh, via our website, bookcougars.com. Nice. Well, I have a couple books coming up. The first is Down to Earth by Monty Don, who I've talked about in past episodes. Monty is a British gardener who has written lots of books. I talked about one of his memoirs. He's had TV shows. Yeah, so I look forward to digging into this. I just uh, picked up my library hold. He's one of the authors I'm going to see at one of the upcoming literary fests. I'll see him on, you know, the computer. One of these (laughs) days I'll meet him in real life, but really looking forward to that. I am also reading the Emma Donahue this month. It's my book club's pick, my in real life, also now online book club. And then there's one more book. I don't think I'm going to be able to start it, but Jenny at Reading Envy is currently doing, I should say, a read-along of Almanac of the Dead by Leslie Marmon Silco. It is, I don't know if you can see that, it is a thick book. It's over 700 pages. And it's one that I've long wanted to read, but I, it's just not the right time for me, unfortunately, to jump in with that read along. But I really look forward to hearing what everybody has to say. Yeah, and she has an active Goodreads page. So we'll put a link into the show notes. So if you want to join that read along, get on the thread. And um, that always makes it a lot more interesting, I think. Yes. Speaking of read alongs, we have our own read along book to talk about. Celestial Bodies by Joka Alaharti, which we've been talking about for quite a while. We had a wonderful Zoom conversation with some listeners last weekend that I really enjoyed. It's just such a neat experience to get people's takes. Yeah, I agree. And we have some really smart readers that really lend to the conversation. And then on our Goodreads thread, 
thank you to Robin and Jenny who both posted like extra credit reads, you know, that um, some interviews with the author and um, interviews with the man booker judges and why they chose the book and things like that. That was really cool also. Yeah, it really was. And that I always love author interviews because as long as there's not going to be a lot of spoilers, Mm -hmm. you just really get more of a feel for the novel and and especially a book like this. So Joka is a Omani author. This is the first novel by an Omani author translated into English. And it's not a culture that I had much familiarity with. What's fascinating to me is that this is an intergenerational novel. You know, it's going back three generations to earlier than the 1970s even. But in the 1970s, when oil made this country go basically from a nomadic, semi-nomadic land to all of a sudden having extreme wealth, you know, she's charting the changes to the culture, to the people, to relationships. And that uh, her interview just helped me with the book so much. Yeah, I wonder if it would have helped to, usually I don't like to listen to interviews until after I've read. With this one, I did kind of wonder, I wonder how it would have changed my reading experience if I had listened to it before, because it actually did make me want to go back and reread it. Mm Mm-hmm which I don't think I'll do, sadly, because of time. But I listened to it, then picked up the book every once in a while. It has a very intense family tree in the front of the book. Although apparently those who got the E version did not have that in the front, which is interesting. We did post a link to a picture of the family tree. So if you did have the E copy or you listened to it on audio, you can see a copy of the family tree on our Goodreads page. Although I'm not sure it's very helpful. <laughs> no, <laughs> well, I think it is helpful. It, it can be, it's but confusing. yeah. You know, for me, I felt like ultimately the novel is an impressionistic novel. It's not a narrative, which is kind of what I decided. You know, and as Westerners, we're so used to reading narratives, you know, stories that are plot driven or character driven. And although there there are characters, obviously, in this book, there's not necessarily character development, and there's not even sometimes a lot to hang your mind on about who this character is when they come back again. Mm-hmm. Although you do yeah. kind of get into a bit of a rhythm, I think, reading it. I also did go back to listening to the audio I know in the last episode, I kind of complained about the audio version a little bit, but I put it on a higher speed and that really helps. That's interesting because I just started it on a higher speed. So maybe I never got to listen to the Krabby Downton Abbey sounding version. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things I enjoyed was Colleen on the Goodreads page brought up one of the traditions of relationships um, and how you know basically soulmates when two halves find their whole together again and she took it back to Plato's conception of that and that's one of the things that I paid attention to while I was reading having read Colleen's comment about that and I just wanted to read this one paragraph if I may um, from a character Khalid who's an artist because at first you know the whole the two halves becoming one again 
that has been used to the detriment of LGBT people because a lot of people talk about those two halves coming together as one male and one female. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, anything could be used as a weapon, unfortunately. Uh, But back to the book and Khalid, who's an artist. And I just wanted to read this because he is somebody who has found his half maybe with something that isn't quite human. So this is the paragraph. Sometimes I went on painting until I collapsed from exhaustion. If I was doing anything else, even just walking down the street or something simple like that, I felt like part of my hand was missing because it wasn't holding a paintbrush. The brush was part of my hand growing with it. My brush breathed the same way I did. I lived in my paintings. Whatever was outside no longer concerned me or touched me, really. All I needed was my imagination. The energy I had for sketching and painting was insane. It was as if I was suffering from a fever. I lived in a fog of sweat and delirium and feeling completely, absolutely one with my art. That is such a description, too, of the insanity of passion, you know, with Mm -hmm. another human being. And I think, you know, as an artist, he's describing that experience as well. So if I were to reread this novel... I would look for more of those types of themes of Mm -hmm. unity with something because, you know, he's talking about his imagination and his art and there are a whole array of relationships in this novel that are fascinating. They are. And I think what was hard for a lot of people was that it wasn't linear. It jumped around a lot from character to character and back and forth in time And it's also, you know, a a lack of familiarity with names, I think, can make it even more confusing, especially for someone like me that's challenged by even names like Bob and Sarah. You know, I just get confused. I have a lot of trouble when I read Russian novels because of that, too. The names are long and I just get really confused. And sometimes I just have to call them by their first letter, you know, and that helps my brain a little bit. Yeah. So this was tricky in that way. The book was translated by Marilyn Booth, and the original title of the book was Ladies of the Moon. And when it was um, put out in English, it was called Celestial Bodies. And there is, to me, some interesting idea, too, about the, you know, the moon and rotation of the moon and people and how they interact with each other. Did you have any thoughts on that yourself? Oh, not too many. No, I can't say mm-hmm. that I did. Um, yeah, you know, I think it is. It's one of those things like going back to the whole impressionistic idea of like, if you get too close, you don't really see anything. But if you pull back, you see the picture. And maybe mm-hmm. it's like that with the universe, you know, that if you pull back and you can see more of the stars and planets in rotation and, and whatnot, maybe that is what mm-hmm. I see, you know, because I do think like if you if you haven't read this novel and you want to pick it up, don't get caught up with trying to understand what's going on. Just kind of give yourself over to the words. I agree. And actually my experience, because I mostly listened to it and then I jumped back in for a few chapters. And when I had the physical book in my hand, I spent the entire time turning back and forth to mm-hmm. the family tree. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I listened to it, I just it was like I let the words just wash over me. Yeah. 
That's great. I didn't get caught up in that at all. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. Now, one of the things about our read-along discussions is that they do have spoilers, and this is going to be a spoilery part. Although nobody really knows what the hell happened in this last chapter, so maybe it's not a spoiler. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I was going to say there was a lot of disagreement about what the ending meant. (laughs) Yes. So one of the things, so as Emily mentioned, um, the three moon sisters or three sisters of the moon. What was the title again? Ladies of the Moon. Ladies of the Moon. So there are these three sisters at the beginning of the novel and then this other whole cast of characters. But interspersed are these first person chapters by a character named Abdallah who is not a very happy man. He's very wealthy. He is one of those you know, he's of that generation that is caught between, you know, having parents who grew up in the old days before the extreme wealth, the oil wealth hit the country, and then now trying to live through these changes, being the first generation. I think that's part of his misery is that there's no tradition to really anchor him completely. His father is heinously abusive to him emotionally and physically when he was a child. His mother's died his one connection to an adult, a maternal figure, is his father's mistress, who was a slave, technically, because slavery in Oman wasn't made illegal until the 70s, and that doesn't mean it actually ended. It was still mm-hmm. happening, and in so many parts of the world still is. But this last chapter, it's Abdallah, and he is at the beach, and we couldn't decide whether he commit suicide whether he kills his son what the hell happened and I know I was whether he had a stroke some people thought he'd had a stroke yes exactly so I know I was listening to the audio and then when when that scene ended and the narrator said the end I was like what (laughs) what how could that be the end and I immediately went to the book and then read that last chapter which is only two pages Mm-hmm. I read it a yep. couple times and I was just like, I still don't understand what happened. So I was glad I wasn't the only one who didn't understand. Yes, I know. <laughs> I was kind of, as I said to people, I mean, I'm really glad I read this book. I would not have read it. I don't think I would have stuck with it as if it hadn't been a read along that we were hosting, especially. <laughs> but, but, um, I was so relieved when it was over because I just felt like it was hard. It was. it was a hard book. Yeah. No, it was a great book for book club. Yeah, I mean, so much to talk about. But I was so relieved that it was over. But then I had the same experience. Like, I have no idea what just happened and went home, you know, when I got home from driving and just picked up the book and I reread it twice, the final chapter. And I still was like, I don't really know what just happened. Yeah. So, yeah. (laughs) And maybe you're not supposed to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's the point. Like, just like you didn't really know who exactly was doing what, when and what was going on and how everything fits together. Um, Mm -hmm. it's just a big hairy mess. And one of the things that made me think of is just the way families do tell stories, you know, and that you don't, you don't always get the same retelling of a story that makes it, I mean, sometimes people retelling the same story from their memory, it's a completely different story, you know, and their experience of it was different. And also there are things that become family lore. Yes. And also I know in my family, there are certain members of the family that like to revise history Mm -hmm. as they're telling stories as well. So it could have been 
And then this book was translated, remember? So there can be many things that were lost in translation as well. Exactly. Yeah. The other thread that I thought was interesting is it was these three sisters and just how different each of the siblings were, which is a fascination I have as the youngest of four that, you know, we're all so different, but yet we grew up together and we're close. And it's just funny how we, our lives go in different directions. And in this book, some of them, one of the sisters was really happy to step into some of the more traditional aspects of the Omani culture and then another pushed against that. And, you know, so that I thought that part was fascinating. And then the other thing I loved about this book was the cultural aspects and the food and the woman who gives birth and how she's treated as a mother afterwards. I just loved that aspect of it. And the coffee with cardamom and dates and all sorts of stuff. I felt like I was there. (laughs) Yeah, I munched on a couple dates during the reading of this book because we (laughs) we always have some in our cabinet. Good pick, everybody. And this was the, you know, we had a couple translated books that we asked listeners to vote on. I think we had four books. Mm -hmm. And this one was chosen by a landslide. I think everybody was kind of right on. Yeah. Thank you, listeners. Yes, very much. So that discussion thread is still active. If you come to listen to this episode later and you want to kind of see what people are thinking, head over to Goodreads and look at that discussion thread and, um, you know, keep talking because we get notifications if somebody adds a comment and we're going to keep talking about this book for a while, I think. Yes, and plenty of people to cheer you on if you have trouble, because there was a lot of cheerleading going on on this thread. I think people (laughs) stepped in and were like, oh. (laughs) Yes, yes, it was a lot. And um, I think we're not over committing to this, but I think in our next episode, we'll announce our next read along, I believe, for the first of the year. Yeah. First quarter of the year. The first quarter of the year. Yep. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to... A new year, new books. Yes. Yes. (laughs) We all have a little dance in our step today, don't we? Yes, we do. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for for sticking with us. This is another long episode. It is. I don't know what's going on. We're just chatty Cathy's lately. I know. We're happy to see each other. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm happy to be reading again. I went through a period where I couldn't find a thing that stuck, but I've been enjoying particularly these chef memoirs for some reason. So great. All right. Well, everybody, thank you so much. And we'll see you in two weeks. In the meantime, we wish you a lot of happy happy reading. reading. Thanks for listening to the book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. To keep the bookish conversation going online, join our Goodreads group or connect with us on social media. If you'd like to contribute to our hunt for a good read, you can donate on Patreon. And if you have a minute to review us on whatever app you use to listen to us, we appreciate it. It can help other listeners find us. Thanks, everybody.